people would meet with people who looked like them. So fundraisers used to be majority white. Now, right now, out of all the fundraisers in this nation, 5% are Latinx. Greetings, it's Katherine Rayberg, and welcome back to the Necro Dialogue on Diversity. This is our eighth episode, and I am so glad you chose to listen in to this incredibly transparent and insightful discussion on diversity. From the challenges of building trust and partnerships to diving into common terminology and definitions used in diversity, equity, and inclusion, to the importance of taking time to educate yourself on what it is like to be a person of color in the fundraising and corporate relations profession. You won't want to miss a minute of this one. Joining Tony Peebles and me in this conversation is Amelia Garza, Associate Director of Major Gifts, and Jennifer Holmes, Assistant Director of Corporate and Foundation Relations, both at Rush University Medical Center in Chicago. Enjoy. So excited to have Jennifer and Amelia joining Tony and I today, and let's just jump right into intros. Well, I'm Tony Peebles, and I'm a a Corporate Relations Director at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio, and I'm just so honored to be partnering with Catherine on this project for NACRO, and uh, we're excited to have two guests that not only are in our profession in, in higher ed fundraising on the corporate side, but also have developed some really what I call great roadmaps for success that we're going to talk about today. Perfect. Thank you. Jennifer, you want to get us started? Sure, absolutely. Jennifer Holmes, so grateful to be here this morning. I began my professional career in fundraising in 2011, and really because I was inspired by the impact that philanthropy makes on our everyday lives. So when I I started in 2011 and then moved on to a different organization in 2013, and that's when I really began to see the possibilities of corporate philanthropy in relation to community-based initiatives. So in that particular role, I increased our corporate giving by 80% in about a year and a half. And then I moved on to another role where I built the corporate giving program from the ground up. And in about short order, we raised about $250,000. And then I moved on to my corporate or my current, I said my corporate organization, my current organization, where I've been for about two and a half years. And through corporate and foundation giving, I've raised just over $2 million. Wow. And so corporate giving is in my DNA. And I really appreciate the opportunity to connect that employee volunteerism through the corporations that we volunteer with and partner with so that we can make that relationship more than a transaction, but we can make it a transformation. And so I'm really grateful to share time with you all this morning to talk about how we can elevate those nonprofit and corporate partnerships and and really just do some transformational work. So thank you. Wonderful, congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, Jennifer. And I, I want to say before Amelia introduces herself that Jennifer and I met through uh, a mutual uh, colleague that we're all involved with an organization called African-American Development Officers, oh. which is a national group of professionals of color that are working in this field. And Jennifer was able to coach us on a couple of things uh, for a program that we're working on around men of color in uh so we always look to our sisters for some advice. <laughs> Thank you so much. Amelia. 
Well, I also have to echo um, everything that's been said, because as you can all see, Jennifer is just an amazing partner and working with her um, to, to tackle systemic racism, to tackle many issues that we have both experienced ourselves and have witnessed others experience. Um, it's, it's been an honor to work with her. And now um, it's even more of an honor to be here with her um, to share about the things that uh, we've written about. So I um, got my master's in women's studies, multicultural women and gender studies at Texas Women's University. Um, but before that, I was a first-generation college student at Augustana College um, and would not have been able to get that education without the support of an alumni scholarship. And that's really what opened up my eyes to the world of philanthropy and why um, after finishing my master's, I was like, I want to spend some time in this field. I saw how this field can change someone's life, my life included. Um, and so I started my career in development at the University of Chicago, um, right? I started as a development assistant, uh, working with different teams, partnering with data management, um, working with international advancement. Uh, and then I was able to work my way up to the global engagement team where I helped manage uh, alumni clubs in the US South and Latin America. And working at the University of Chicago at that time, we were currently undergoing a $5 billion campaign, um, which they were able to close and succeed. But that's really where I learned the ins and outs um, of the development machine and, and how to do fundraising in a way that was successful. Um, so it really taught me my ABCs, so to speak. And then about three years ago, uh, I joined the Rush University Medical Center team um, as an associate director of major gifts. And in that role, I get to work with individuals who are wanting to have an impact, who are wanting to make an investment um, for our neurosciences, for our pediatrics and our ENT teams. So it's been a pleasure being able to work with them. Um, and of course, as you all can uh, guess, the past year and a half has certainly been a roller coaster. Um, so that, yes, I'm sure Jennifer can attest to that. Um, COVID and the murder of George Floyd have had a huge impact um, on the hospital and on our patients and um, has given us the opportunity to open some doors and to charge right through. So thank you both for having us here. Talk a little bit about it, either of you can, before Jenner, uh, before Catherine kind of gets into your writings, I wanted you to talk about just that. How have you leveraged your background, your understanding of what's going on in the environment when these tragic incidents happen, where we saw racism and systemic racism, which was always there, but bubble up to the surface in such a tragic and dramatic fashion. I know that, in, I, I think all of us think it, would say that it has impacted fund development, partnering with corporations and the like, but how have you guys been able to leverage that good or bad? Well, you know, Tony, I'll start off um, since Amelia just finished with an amazing introduction. Um, there are a few things, there, there are a few things. One, as people of color, as professionals of color, we, I don't know that I want to call it an opportunity, but I will call it an opportunity of enlightenment or, or, or just a, an experience of enlightenment where we 
had to force ourselves to stop and take a step back and understand that we, we were bringing just a piece of ourselves to our roles because in, in our sector and in corporate society in general, we're taught that bringing our feelings and our passion is not necessarily professional. Feelings and, and being business don't necessarily go together. But then when we had to all live through together, watching someone's life be extinguished in eight and a half to nine minutes, and we kept seeing it over and over and over and over again, whether on TV or social media, then I had to say, you know, we're real people, we're whole people, and we bring all of that to our jobs and it doesn't decrease our professionalism. It doesn't decrease or diminish our expertise. We're whole people and we bring our history, we bring our culture, we bring our norms, all of that to our work. And so I say all that to say that it gave us the chance to have some authentic relationships with people who have different life experiences than we do. Um, mainly our colleagues who we spend a lot of time with. Sometimes we spend more time with our colleagues than we do with our own family. So everybody had a, a mental, emotional, and physical call to action in 2020. Um, and so what does that have to do with our work in philanthropy? Well, you know what? It wasn't just fundraisers. It wasn't just nonprofit organizations. Our donors saw it and felt it too. So then we had to have conversation with our donors who were challenging us about where their philanthropic investment was being made. Some said to us that they didn't want any of their funding to go to Black Lives Matter initiatives. You know, they didn't want, <laughs> you know, they didn't want, they wanted to really be able to regulate where their funding was going and how Rush was using it. So that also gave us an opportunity to really take a step back and think about one, what are the stories we're telling about the people who we serve? How are we treating ourselves as fundraisers? And then how are we position ourselves as an advocate and an ally for the people we serve? So it just gave us an opportunity to have some real authentic conversations that were uncomfortable for some people, um, but um, they were necessary. So I just think it's extremely unfortunate that this level of consciousness was raised because somebody had to lose their life. That is so unfortunate that there was no other way that we could have gotten to where we are without somebody dying and the, the world being erupted. <laughs> you know, I just wish there was another way we could have got where we are right now. So I'll, I'll turn it over <laughs> to Amelia. Yeah, I mean, Jennifer, you said so much of it. The change that we are seeing and that we've seen in our industry, it, it took that. The cost of change was someone's life. And that's a pretty high price to pay for change. And change had been happening before that. Um, Jennifer and I have both been working on initiatives long before the murder and execution of George Floyd. But we know that that price is something that we'll always take with us. Um, and that whenever we're having a hard day, I'm like, Jennifer, I can't do it today. I don't have the energy to work through this work. I just remember that. I have time, I have air in my lungs, 
and I need to use it for something. Amen. Wow. That's, that's very, very um, profound and incredible to be thinking about the legacy there and the work that you're doing. And I was just, um, I really appreciated the thoughtfulness that you've put out into some articles this past year. Your first one um, you published in early April of this year, um, the Fundraiser Bill of Rights, Creating Equitable Partnerships. Uh, really, for me, it level set so much and helped me understand. Um, I think all of us are on a journey of understanding diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, and nobody's at the same level ever. Um, and we're, we're always all probably trying to learn and evolve. And I really appreciated the term section in this article. So maybe kind of start there for our audience, um, helping them understand maybe some important terms and definitions in this space. Um, if you don't mind starting there, and then we'll dig into more. There, it's just a wonderful article. Oh, thank you. I can start, Jennifer. If that's okay. okay with you. Yeah, that sounds great. So, in our term section, um, we highlighted a few uh, different words that are coming up in this space: culture of power, explicit and implicit racism, institutionalized racism tokenism or model minority and intersectionality. And we could have gone on and on with this list, but these are really what we thought um, the article spoke to um, and what we often see in this business world. So I'll actually start with explicit and implicit um, racism. Mm -hmm. Explicit racism is what we often think about, right? It is, uh, those who are waving swastikas, those who identify as Nazis. Um, it is segregation. It is right. Um, it, everything that we have seen uh, in the civil rights era um, today, um, that's racism that you can easily call out, that you can easily see. You can point to and you can say, yes, that's racism. Implicit racism, it's harder to identify and harder to call out. Implicit racism is a product of redlining, which we know has happened far and wide in the city of Chicago. Um, implicit racism is me being at work. Um, maybe I'm assertive during a meeting and someone calls me spicy. And as a Latina, that carries a different context and different weight to it. Um, so implicit racism is not necessarily something that you can easily see. It's not like a parade uh, of racism in your face. It, it, are, it is acts, subtle acts of exclusion. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we talk about both of these different contrasts uh, in the piece. And I'll pin it over to Jennifer to speak to other terms. Yeah, you know, there are a couple that I want to, I'd love to highlight, um, Catherine, well, I would love to highlight it, but I think we should, we need to, to talk about it. Um, a couple is uh, tokenism and BIPOC. Um, I'll start with tokenism. So tokenism is a act of bringing a person of color um, to a workforce, to a conversation, to an organization, to a board, to a role. Simply for, um, simply for the result of looking or appearing to be inclusive and diverse. It's, it's not, tokenism is, is not a authentic way of building a relationship and really tapping into the expertise 
of a person of color is only to have them at the table just to give the appearance of being inclusive, mm -hmm. inclusive and diverse. That's all it's for. Um, so when a per person is tokenized, they're they're at a table, they may try to offer their insights on a conversation. They may try to be involved in decision-making. They may try to influence policies and procedures, but their voices are never listened to. Their voices are never taken into account. Their perspectives are never really regarded. And so that's when a person feels and is being tokenized. Um, the second that I want to uh, highlight is BIPOC or um, Black Indigenous people of color. So why do I want to highlight this? It's because it's a, it's a phrase that really popped up in um, latter 2019, and it really got a lot of, of work and, and legs um, in 2020. And so there are a couple of things here worthy of talking about. So BIPOC, um, just in its nature, almost infers that every group that's identified in that term has the same experience of oppression and marginalization, and that's just simply not true. Um, black people, what we think of black people or African Americans, which is um, something that we can untangle in another conversation, but black people, the experience of marginalization, discrimination and oppression is a very different experience than those that are immigrants to the United States or though our sister, our Latinx sisters and brothers experience is completely different. Similarly, the experience of Native Americans or Native, the indigenous people, our sisters and brothers that are part of that identity, their experience in the world and in the United States is very different from those that are Latinx and those that are Black. So I think we have to be very intentional about how we use that term. Now, I've had a good friend of mine, another fundraiser say that when we're looking at metrics and we're talking about percentages of who's represented in a population as far as workforce or career or a donor pipeline, sometimes it's, it's, it's appropriate to use BIPOC and then sometimes it's not. So we have to really think about how we're using it and in what environment we're using it so that, that we don't give the appearance that we believe that all people of color or all people who have been structurally and historically marginalized have the same experience because that's simply not true. Um, and and I'll, I'll speak to this really quickly is that we see um, sometimes the case for equity between the LGBTQ plus community and the black community as being synonymous. Those two are exclusive because the experiences of discrimination, oppression, they show up differently. And so we just wanna be sensitive to the fact that every individual has their own experience with oppression and discrimination and we wanna be respectful of that. So, so those are the two terms that I wanted to uh, highlight. Thank you so much for going into detail on um, BIPOC in particular. I also felt like it was just becoming this mainstream phrase and I was confused trying mm -hmm. to understand it, when to use it, how to use it. So um, that's really helpful. It, it, so the key takeaway really is it's very individual. 
it, you need to be very careful and sensitive in your language and um, just pay attention and ask questions if you don't understand. Sure. Always. Always. Yeah. About anything. You know, we should yeah. ask questions yeah. if we don't understand. Yeah. I also Thank found you. it really interesting. Um, sorry, Tony, and then you jump oh, in good, here. Good, good. Um, you were talking about the building trust cycle as a fundraiser and um, how it can be can be more challenging if you are a person of color. Maybe dig into that a little bit. Yeah, Amelia, I'll turn it over to you. I can speak to that. Yeah. Um, Oftentimes, uh, as fundraisers in the past, uh, people would meet with people who look like them. So fundraisers used to be majority white. Now, right now, out of all the fundraisers in this nation, 5% are Latinx. Um, unfortunately, that's the only statistic I know of as right now, but I will look up the other statistics after this conversation. <clears throat> but knowing that and knowing that the donors that we're reaching out to are also majority white, I may not look like someone that they've worked with before. I may not be someone that they've spoken to about their finances before. Um, the stereotypes that we have around our races may deter them from working with me. And that has happened before in the past. Um, in our research, Jennifer and I found some different articles um, that we speak to uh, and, and, and cite in this piece, this first piece, um, the article found that it takes at least one to three additional conversations for fundraisers of color to even get their foot in the door. Whereas a white fundraiser is able to do that off the bat. Um, and so these statistics, the, the research that so many different people are doing right now need to continue to happen because I know there is a lot more information out there. Um, and Tony, I know you spoke to this before about um, having the data, having, um, putting it into a quantitative measure. People of color, fundraisers of color, we have known that these issues existed for a very, very long time. Um, and now putting pen to paper having the resources to do the research and translating our experience into quantitative measures is going to really help us push the dial forward. Um, that is just one statistic. So when organizations or companies are thinking about fundraising metrics, knowing that it may take us three additional conversations or touch points with the donor to be able to even qualify a donor, that's really going to affect our bottom line. That's going to affect how many gifts we're able to close in a year. It's going to affect how many significant contacts we have to have before we're able to move a donor from qualification to cultivation. So understanding what those differences are and what those barriers and challenges are for fundraisers of color is going to be really important for organizations in order to make sure that they are challenging their fundraisers but also not, um, not holding their fundraisers to expectations that are unrealistic. Yes, yeah, interesting you say that. And Jennifer, you and I may have heard this a lot of times growing up that we have to be twice as good. That, yes. is, that is a mantra in the African-American community for those of us who had the blessing of getting education and trying to move into any of these roles in all the professions that we had to be twice as good to get the same or less uh, opportunity. Uh, but I like what you're saying because I think 
in my career, I spent most of my career in the financial services world and um, I was not in a particular diversity program. I was in, in the general marketplace as a commercial banker. And I do know that I probably had to make more calls, more appointments. I accepted it. I didn't really, I quantified it just because I knew that if it took my colleague 10 cents, I needed 15 and I just did it. And it just because that's, you know, parents and grandparents just said, you just gotta be twice as good. That's not necessarily fair. Talk about the, the converse of that, which is that when you look at predominantly white institutions around the country, many of them are no longer predominantly white by, uh, by with your, in terms of your, your enrollment. Uh, when, I was at, when I was at Duke in the 1980s, um, it was probably 75, 80% white. Now it's 55% other. Uh, I'm not gonna use BIPOC because I don't use the term, but it's 55% all of the other uh, diverse categories. What is that? So to me, optimistically, that means that there's more opportunity on the long haul for um, fundraisers of color and of different diverse backgrounds if universities begin to recognize that their donor base is evolving just as the demographics of the country is evolving. So for example, here at Case Western Reserve, we're about 52, 53% uh, minorities with all Asian, African-American, uh, Latinx, uh, um, foreign students and the like, which means that if we fast forward 20 years or 25 years, that donor base, now that they've accumulated some wealth, become our target donors, one out of two of those donors is going to be a person of color somewhere in the diaspora in the globe. Um, we're, and, and most of our staffs around the country are probably still predominantly white. How do we begin to address the fact that there is a, there's also a business case for having more diverse fund developers, whether it's the corporate side like, like we're doing or the individual side or the annual fund person or whatever, because the demographics of the donor base is changing. I mean, 20 years ago, you were calling on white males and the widows of white males. And I'm just putting it bluntly. That has evolved. First of all, there's more, many more women that are C-suite business mm -hmm. owners. So you, you, your conversations with women have to change. That's a whole mm -hmm. We can have a whole talk on that, right? And then the <laughs> conversation around people of color who are now rolling into the C-suites and the entrepreneurship and become the big potential donors for mm -hmm. everything from research to scholarships and the like. Can talk a little bit about that. It's, it's kind of the converse of what you're saying. But. Yeah, I'll start that off, Anthony. So um, I think we just have to talk about the numbers. You know, we're, we're numbers people, right? And so we just have to talk about the numbers and do our research. And so one of the things that I talked to our department about, you, you both know that Amelia and I both work for the same institution. And so one of the things that I talked to our leadership about is just that, the numbers. And so what I mean by that is we look at the fact that I, I'll use the term African-Americans just, just for the sake of conversation, that African-Americans give 25% more of their income philanthropically than our white counterparts, even though we have less income than our white counterparts. But we're giving 25% more of that income to philanthropic or to charitable organizations. That's a business statement. That's a business case, in my opinion. Then we look at the astronomical growth of the Latinx population and how it's going to continue to grow over the next nine years and the $1.73 trillion that they have in their community to invest and to give 
we have to, if we're going to build a sustainable giving program at any of our institutions, we have to have one, a strategy for talking to those communities. And two, we have to have the gift officers who can relate to those communities. That means that we need Spanish speaking gift officers. That means that we need black men and women. We need native, we need LGBTQ plus. We have to do what we need to do to get the gift officers who can speak the language and share the commonalities of our prospective donors. There's no ifs, ands, and buts about it. And so that's gonna be scary for some of our white colleagues who have um, excelled in their career, not only because they're smart people, but also because they're white, because they are binary, because they are able-bodied, because, um, uh, yeah, because of those reasons. <laughs> and so, um, and so we face the challenge of if we make space for the others, what does that mean for me? Does it mean I lose power? Does it mean I lose privilege? Does that mean I lose access? And you know, we we have to get to a point where we help our colleagues understand that this is not about losing anything we all gain when we invite each other to the table and we treat each other equitably. Um, so, so I'm about the money. I, I enjoy money and everything that it can do for us. And so I like talking about what each community who has not historically been invited to the table, what they invest philanthropically, how they invest philanthropically, and why they invest philanthropically. Because each community that's in a marginalized state in our society, they have customs and norms and reasons why they give. And we have to understand that. Culturally, we have to understand that. For example, um, something that's really important to the, our native sisters and brothers is bartering and making sure that they respect their elders and how they give. So we have to understand that when we're working with our native brothers and sisters, when we're talking to our African-American brothers and sisters, understanding that poverty is sometimes the same generation or just a generation behind them. So gener poverty is in their rearview mirror. So how they give and how they invest might be influenced by that fact. So we need to know that when we're having those conversations. Um, so I, I just absolutely think that we, we can, not that the morality of eliminating racism isn't important, but the financial and the economic impact of addressing and eliminating racism is what's gonna change the trajectory of our organizations. Just an incredible conversation and I'm learning so much here. So I really appreciate you being so open. And um, in our role in corporate relations, love to get your insights on where do you see the corporate partnerships fitting into this space? Um, there's been a lot of public statements on investments that they're making. Um, how, where do you see our role in making that connection with corporate partners? What is what really is their role in society and in solving these challenges? Amelia, did start. you want to? Yeah, okay. I can start. And I also um, want to follow up to what uh, Jennifer just mentioned. My biggest fear with that, with um, having more people of color 
um, in philanthropy and development shops is that organizations are going to only put people of color with donors of color. I think it's just as important for white fundraisers to learn about donors of color, right? Because as fundraisers, you're supposed to adapt to every single person, every single corporation um, contact that you are meeting with. Um, and I have spent 30 plus years of my life learning how to work and live in a white world, a white business world. And I know that my white colleagues can take an hour out of their day, maybe once a month to learn about communities of color and to learn how to work with them from the fundraising and philanthropic standpoint. So I just wanted to add that to that. Um, and then moving on, to the, yeah, moving on to the corporate side of things. Um, I uh, have spoken with professors and, and colleagues in the corporate space, and there is that idea of we're starting um, from a negative standpoint, and there is the goal to get to neutral, right? So we want to get to a neutral playing field. What does that mean? It means corporations are donating the required 2%, right? The 2% club. We want, I, I should say, I want corporations to go farther. I want them to go beyond what is neutral. I want them to think about their investments from an impact standpoint. And I think a lot of corporations are moving towards that. Mm -hmm. um, my experience with corporations um, is from the business standpoint and not from the philanthropic standpoint. So I do want to paint it over to Jennifer for that closer look into fundraising and partnerships with corporations. So Catherine, your question is a wonderful one. And I, and I love it because it's, it's what, it, it's what gives us energy. If we, if we really are embedded in corporate giving, being able to marry a corporation's corporate social responsibility commitment to the mission of the organizations we're serving. I don't know about you all, but that gives me a little bit of energy. And so um, here's what we do though. We, as much as we can, and that our corporate partners will allow us, we embed ourselves in their culture. We understand their targeted audience. Who are their, who are their customers? What's important to their customers? And what strategies are they taking to um, market and to sell and then to steward their relationships with their customers? When we understand that as a gift officer, we can easily translate that knowledge into how we both identify, solicit, and steward our donors. And we marry the two so that our corporate partners see themselves as a sister and a brother to our organizations and we are we see ourselves likewise so I, I just think it's in, it's incumbent on the gift officer to really entrench themselves into their corporate partners world and then be able to speak the language to get them to understand that there is a, a synergy between that corporation and our nonprofit organizations and then it moves from a transaction. We're gonna get that transaction and the goal is to make sure that we get it every year and that we can um, engage them in employee volunteerism, um, that we can make connections between the corporate, the corporation's employees and our donors so that they can build relationships, 
And then we're just, we're married for the long term. There's no divorce happening. There's no separation happening. We're, so we're, we're long term. So go ahead. So, so talk, so, so you've given a great overview of kind of from an overall perspective, diversity or otherwise, what a yep. corporate relationship looks like with a, with a institution of higher learning. Talk about maybe the nuances or what are the additional things we need to do to continue to make the business case that diversity, equity, and inclusion can be a part of those packages. You talk everything from the volunteerism to the to the scholarship, but you've kind of described that that whole continuum of a, almost you've almost kind of laid out the sales process, if you will, right? Which yeah. I appreciate and and yeah. I'm happy to know that that's kind of what we do. What is it about this particular sale or this component of the overall relationship that needs either extra care, different type of support, education, awareness? Because as Amelia said, and as Catherine said in her question, a lot of companies have beautiful statements. A lot of universities have beautiful diversity statements. But what are we doing to monetize it, if you will, whether yeah. it's research into health disparities, which I'm sure you guys are tackling at Rush? whether it's um, talent pipeline issues for a more diverse uh, workforce, and in your case, more providers out there, healthcare providers, because there's clearly a need there. Talk a little bit about that as we wrap up. Yep. And has a few last comments. Yep, you know what, Tony? We're gonna go back a year or two or several. Whitney M. Young was, um, we know Whitney M. Young was a part of the civil rights movement and he was a um, fellow fighter with Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King approached racism um, from the standpoint of morality. Whitney M. Young, however, talked about the business case. He talked about the economic impact of discriminating Absolutely. and eliminating black people from the workforce. I don't think that argument has changed that when corporations do not look at the impact of the, the black dollar, the Latinx dollar, and all of our other sisters and brothers, they are leaving money on the table. The same way we're doing in our philanthropy shops, when we don't diversify our donor pipeline, we're leaving billions of dollars on the table. So we can do our research as gift officers and understand those numbers and the patterns of our prospective donors and customers and marry the two. I think that's the, I think that's it. <laughs> Hey, well, Will, I, Catherine, I think uh, that's a mic drop. I think we're good. There. That is a mic drop. Yes. Absolutely. absolutely. Oh, um, and, you know, Amelia, amazing point that you made on uh, taking time to educate yourself. So thank you so much. You've invested some time in me and helping me to understand. And um, just incredible, productive, insightful, uh, powerful conversation here today. And hate that we're getting close to time, um, but we just really appreciate on behalf of all the NAPRO membership. <clears throat> I think everybody will walk away from listening to this conversation um, with better insights and able to do their job a little bit better. So I'll be sure and link both of the articles that were published this past year in the show notes. Um, the second one we didn't get to dig into as much, um, but it is titled Office Culture and Wellbeing, Why Hiring Diverse Candidates is Not the First Step. And that was also just incredible the pitfalls of making candidate hires to make them and not building the right infrastructure around them. So would definitely encourage everybody listening to take some time and read these articles. And thank you so much. We'll close out here. We appreciate your time. Have a wonderful day. A great weekend. Have thank a great one. Thank you. Hey, thank you for so much. <laughs>